This episode of For the Love with Jen Hatmaker is brought to you by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors. They can be big, difficult, even scary life things, and also small inconveniences that add up day after day. The thing is, when we keep them all bottled up on the inside and just try to grin and bear it, it can start to affect us and the people around us negatively. We may even isolate ourselves, which makes it even worse. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. This was the case for me when I was at the highest stress level in my life, where the stress was even having physical consequences for me. Therapy was a huge part of my healing journey to learn how to manage the stress. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash for the love today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash for the love. I'm so glad to hear you say that Black culture is central to American culture because it is. It is. And it's not a thing like, oh, well, if we just want to privilege Black voices, then we need to center them in American history. No, it's just a fact. Welcome to the For the Love podcast with me, Jen Hatmaker. Today, we'll dive into the rich history and influence of Black culture in America with historian and cultural critic, Dr. Tanisha C. Ford. I'm really glad that you're here. I'm so happy you hit download or how you have already subscribed and you have chosen to tune in, not just to this whole series, but specifically to this conversation because I loved this one. In fact, I told Tanisha this hour went away for me in 60 seconds. It was so fast. She's so interesting. You probably know we're in a series right now called For the Love of Black Lives. And it's been powerful and interesting and fascinating and sobering and you know, as we look around at this sort of racial reckoning happening, really not just in the United States right now, but globally, this felt like a really important time to bring powerful leaders to this podcast who could walk us through so many different facets of this work and this moment and help us look not just forward, but also backward. And so today we are going to talk about the rich and bold and beautiful contributions that Black women and men have had since day one on the fabric of American culture. We don't have an American experience without the Black experience. This is not ancillary. It's not a side experience. It's fundamental. It's centered And so the Black experience, obviously born out of slavery and systemic racism and white supremacy and physical and mental and emotional pain, but also resiliency, power, family, liberation, healing, it's all embedded. So, I mean, frankly, unless you're Native American, your family came from somewhere else. If you're white, Your ancestors probably came voluntarily. And if you were Black, your ancestors were likely forced under threat of violence to board a ship bound for the slave blocks on the American shores, right? And through all of that, from beginning to now, 
Black women and men still told the stories passed down from their mothers and grandmothers, and they cooked the meals that had been staples of the family. They sang and danced and played beautiful music. They wrote and dreamed, and their culture is deeply woven into the absolute fabric of American life through art and persistence and resiliency passed down from generation to generation to this living day. Black culture has fed us and moved us and inspired us for thousands of years. And so today we are going to talk about the richness of it all with a scholar I am so happy to introduce you to if you haven't already followed her. So today we have on Tanisha C. Ford, Dr. Ford, if you will. She is a leading voice speaking at the intersection of politics and culture. She's an award-winning writer. She's a cultural critic. She's a professor of history at the Graduate Center of CUNY. So no big deal. She's also the co-founder of Textures, which is a pop-up material culture lab creating and curating content on Black design, material life, and the built environment. It's just so interesting. Obviously, her commitment to social justice and racial justice in communities of color is evident in literally everything she produces. Her latest book is called Dressed in Dreams, a Black girl's love letter to the power of fashion, right? It's a memoir about Tanisha's journey through fashion. Oh, and guess who's adapting it for TV? Frida Pinto and Gabrielle Union. Tra-la-la. You'll notice today in today's conversation, she's obviously a scholar and a teacher and a good teacher. I felt like I was in class of my favorite professor who was engaging and interesting and just jammed full of wisdom and experience and knowledge. And so you're going to really, really, really like this discussion. You're going to learn a lot. You're going to hear a lot. I'm so glad and grateful to have gotten to speak voice to voice to Dr. Ford. And I was really happy about her final answer, what is saving your life right now. So you're going to have to stay tuned all the way to the end to hear that awesome answer. Okay, so with that, I am so pleased to share my conversation with the brilliant scholar and writer, Dr. Tanisha C. Ford. Welcome to the For the Love podcast. I'm just absolutely delighted to meet you. I'm just really crazy about your work. Thank you for being here. Thanks for inviting me, Jen. I mean, likewise, the feeling is mutual. So I'm looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, me too. (laughs) Me too. Your specific body of work, your area of expertise is just fascinating. I mean, it's just so fascinating. And so let me just say right out of the gate that it is impossible to even capture a teaspoon worth of Black culture and the richness of it, the depth and scope of it in one podcast. I mean, that's silly. But I am excited to even just dip in a little bit to be able to learn from you today. And so please hear me say this right out of the gate. I really appreciate some of the labor that you are offering me and my community today to share your experience, to share your knowledge. Some of this dips into hard and traumatic places. And so I recognize that this is an emotional labor for you. And I'm very, very grateful that you've chosen to do it. Thank you. And I see it. Thank you, Jen. See, this is why I love you, because you understand, you get it, you get the politics, you get that kind of affective labor that goes into this work, you know, the emotional labor, all of that. But the part of me that's a professor first, the teacher first, 
I love to have the opportunity to take what I've learned and know and then translate that for an audience outside of my academic piece. Right? Like to make this all, you know, very tangible and, and understandable and relatable for people. So th- this is my job and I love to do it. <laughs> You're a teacher's teacher. <laughs> like this is what you do probably in your dreams and in your sleep. So I filled in my listeners with your incredible bio and credentials. And when I see your work and the huge scope of what you think about and what you read and what you write about and what you teach, I'm speaking to a woman who has been probably a lifelong student of culture is my guess. High culture, pop culture, niche cultures, whatever. This feels very natural to you. And so could you talk for just a few minutes about, I don't know, maybe like when you realized this interests me. I want to be a student and ultimately a teacher of culture and even how your parents and your household growing up shaped your view, particularly of black culture. You know, I think when I went off to college, my freshman year of college, and I started taking courses, and this is at a time when, you know, Spike Lee films were hugely popular and we could take courses were being offered on like Black American film and Black music. And I started to think like, wow, like these things that my parents introduced me to at home are college courses. I can take courses on on culture, on Black culture. Because my father, I would consider him like a, a left-leaning, new left kind of guy. You know, he's, he served in the Vietnam War era military. And, you know, so his mind was shaped a lot about around those kinds of politics of the 60s and 70s. And he loved jazz and soul music. So I grew up with this very hefty music collection and our ritual was to go downstairs into the basement where he had all his equipment set up and we would just listen to music for hours. So, I mean, by the time I was 10, 11, 12, I mean, I knew the names of Curtis Mayfield, Roberta Flack, uh, Aretha Franklin, you know, all these people, Gil Scott Heron. I mean, these were the people my dad had me listening to. And then my mother, she was a self-proclaimed feminist, you know, a black feminist. You know, she was really in- involved in feminist politics and, of course, was going to college in the early 1970s when the women's movement is in full swing. So for her, it was always about empowering me as a woman and empowering me as a Black woman. So I can remember wearing Black is Beautiful t-shirts. I can remember she always had, you know, Black-centered artwork on the walls. And she would take magazines, you know, Jet and Ebony magazines, and they were always neatly arranged underneath the coffee table. So there was a way that this culture was all around me in my home. But it wasn't until I went off to college where I majored in English and African-American studies that I realized that, wow, I can really take this seriously. Like these are are real ways to analyze the world. So those the love of culture blended with my love and interest in the social movements of the 1960s and 70s. So I started to realize that there was a way that you could use culture to understand all sorts of social and political phenomena. And so it's like the love of those two things just kind of blended together. And then that became, you know, my whole academic career, making people understand how you can take everyday things like culture and use them to explain very complex ideas about race and gender and sexuality and, you know, other identity politics. Your path was set and you walked it well. Your particular expertise is fashion, which is so fun and exciting to talk about. I wonder if you 
could walk us through your closet through the years and how that has been an expression of who you were as a Black girl coming up, who you are as a Black woman today? It's interesting because I kind of came to the dress piece of this all really late in terms of the analysis of it, right? So, but I started to think like, in this world, humans wear clothes, right? (laughs) So every day we make a choice to get dressed and that choice comes with a whole set of politics around it, whether we're cognizant of, of those things or not. So I started to think that this becomes a really important way to study the human experience and what unites us as people across race, across genders, across sexual identities, religions, et cetera. And that really got me going in, going along this journey into my own closet, you know, and that especially became the case when I started writing my latest book, Dressed in Dreams. But I realized that my earliest ideas around fashion and the dress body came from my mom. So I think my early closet was just everything in her closet. Like I just, sure, I just wanted what she had, you know, because my mother was an amazing dresser and she just made and designed her own clothes, oh. including her own wedding gown. Oh no, She way. made her own wedding gown and her, her bridesmaid wedding gown too. So, you know, this was another thing that was just kind of in my blood. Like I had this okay. mother who really cared about clothes. And so in the early days, it was wanting to wear her leather jackets and, you know, put on her high heels. And she had these brooches that she would, you know, put on her Connie pumps and, you know, but then being a child of the hip hop generation, so much of hip hop and R&B shaped my style. So TLC and Aaliyah, Mary J. Blige, the way they're wearing baggy, oversized clothes and bright colors, you know, the R&B group Jodeci and their big clunky, chunky boots, you know, know, like the combat boots, like that was the look. So I think that so much of that shaped my adolescence. And then of course, hip hop, before hip hop artists loved diamonds and bling, they loved gold. So we all had to have our bangles and our our bamboo earrings. And, you know, so so much of that for me just kind of shaped who I was as a, a young black girl. But, you know, as a woman, you know, as we get older, our, our bodies change. I've had a baby. You know, every, everything is always up for grabs. Everything is always changing. It is. It's you know? up for grabs. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I love now? I love a good hat. Oh, okay. You know, I love a good hat. And, you know, even today I'm, in, I'm inside my house. You know, I, I'm not wearing a hat. I usually like to wear my hats in fall and, you know, spring. But, you know, I even have like a head wrap. I just love a headpiece. Like, I just... Okay the main thing for me and so I love to pair a cute you know brimmed hat with some you know holy jeans and a nice you know duster or cardigan or blazer and just kind of do this gender bending mix of the masculine and the feminine so I think that that kind of says who I am now as a a grown woman a fully grown woman listen to everybody (laughs) listening we are going to go grab as many pictures as we can from your social media sites, and we'll put them over on the transcript so you guys can see. Let me ask you this. So the Black experience is obviously central to the American experience, and it has been since the very beginning, since day one, back when African culture was brought straight over here on slave ships, the myths, the music, the fashion, the stories, all of it. And so when I consider black culture, it's amazingly resilient. It has never given in to the colonizer's demand to buckle and assimilate, never. 
So I wonder as a history professor, when did Black culture begin showing up in the history books of America, which I say in air quotes because history has always been seen through a revisionist lens, through the lens of white supremacy. When and how did we first begin to see the impact sincerely about, and and in the greater culture, I should say, of Black women and men in the earliest days of our country? I'm so glad to hear you say that Black culture is central to American culture, because it is. It is. It is. is And it's, it's not a thing like, oh, well, if we just want to privilege Black voices, then we need to center them in American history. No, it's just a fact. We have been here. We are central to the founding of this country, that our experience, our forced labor, the sexual exploitation of Black women, all those things are central to this country. Um, And we were a fully formed human population. Uh, We were a fully formed political group, ethnic groups with our own kind of diversity, with our own, our our various languages, political hierarchies, you know, royal families, peasant families, like everything in pre-colonial Africa, right? So when we were forced upon those ships, those of us who survived that very treacherous middle passage journey were kind of dispersed across the the entire new world. So it meant that what we now consider black culture or black American culture in the United States is really an amalgamation of the various cultures from across West Africa, which again, I want to emphasize like how varied and diverse the peoples of those nations were, but then also an amalgamation of all of the new world cultures. So you have people of various African nations and ethnic groups who then are, you know, brought to various parts of the Caribbean and South and Central America. And so they're fusing with the indigenous people of those places. People are being moved. Like it was nothing for enslaved men and women to be moved to several different colonies over the course of their lives. So I really want people to understand just how diverse this culture is. And so then what we see happen in the United States is like different cultural patterns form differently, unevenly across the United States colonies. So what's happening in New Orleans and parts of South Florida looks different than what's happening in Virginia or Rhode Island, right? So it's a really a mix of things that we've kind of come to describe as African-American culture. And what's really important to me is that there have always been, there's some African-Americans who were never enslaved or cannot trace roots back to slavery. So that means that there's been a free black population. There have been enslaved black populations and people who were able to purchase their own freedom or who ran to freedom. So what that's meant is that we've always had black historians and storytellers. There were some very sympathetic, uh, left-leaning abolitionist whites who were instrumental in helping to tell those stories. So that's how we get people like Harriet Jacobs and Frederick Douglass and Henry Box Brown and various people whose narratives of slavery to freedom become part of like the early telling of America, like if we were to tell that through a Black land. So I would say that there have always been these moments where Black voices have shown up in the history, 
And there's, of course, the black, the print media, both in terms of like black print presses, but also in terms of abolitionist publications that definitely believed in an integrated vision of telling stories and telling history and delivering the news. Those things were always popular. But with the establishment of various HBCUs, either right before the war or immediately after the war, that's when you start to have history departments that are helmed by Black scholars who are teaching a very Black-centered agenda, a Black-centered history, who are saying, we need to know our history. It's not just about the great white men of America or American history, our founding fathers. There are stories of our own people that we need to tell. And that's why people like Carter G. Woodson are supremely important in this history. But then there's also a cadre of Black women who become highly educated, like Anna Julia Cooper and Ida B. Wells, these women who are central to telling our stories and centering Black women's voices as well. So we've been there and we've been writing these histories. But what's interesting to me is that as a historian, as professional historians, we make a set of choices about what kind of dates, location, people, voices that we privilege in the archive or what we think is available in the archive to tell a story. And because of that, that means that if the academy is mostly populated by white men, they're more likely to reproduce a story that centers on George Washington, you know, or an Aaron Burr or Alexander Hamilton or, you know, like, so, so as we start to see the American academy become more diverse, then we get to see some of those histories that had already been written, but kind of fell by the wayside, then, then Black women scholars such as myself reclaim those things. Black trans scholars say, oh, wow, Black trans people have always been around and we've always been present in the archive. But because no one was looking for our voice, they didn't center it. And so it's really important that for people to understand that history isn't just a set of facts. People like to think it's a set of dates that you just memorize. No, history is constructed by source material and how one reads that source material, what source material they see is valuable and what source material they say, nah, not so much, you know? And so the work of the black woman historian has been to find black women in death records on slave ships in the Middle Passage, to find black women in property sales slips in sales records, because again, we were seen as less than human. We were seen as property akin to cattle, you know, akin to a, a wooden desk that one would sell at, or one would be a part of one's estate after they passed away. So that's how we had to find black women's voices because these people weren't allowed to legally read and write. So we don't, we may not have, you know, rich set of papers, but we've had to learn how to strategically strategically read the documents against the grain in order to show that Black women were here, you know? And so because of that, we've been able to tell these very rich histories of the Middle Passage, but also of the early American Republic. Totally. Oh my God, you're such a good teacher. I could listen to you talk all day long. <laughs> oh, you're such a good teacher. Tell my students that. Yes. Tell my students right. how much they should appreciate me. <laughs> uh. I want to talk about church for a second. Church has been obviously a huge part of Black culture and remains that way today. When did church become a place for Black women and men to congregate? Because it's a complicated thing to discuss since the Christian church in the West 
was introduced to the Black community through white colonizers, right? So why and how has it remained such a huge cultural touchstone for the Black community to this day? Well, I am a Black girl who grew up in church. And, you know, I was on the usher board and I was in the choir and all these amazing things. And so it's totally right that the church has been central to the Black community for a very long time. One thing that I think it's important to point out is that the white Christian church, again, is not a monolith. There are various denominations and sects within the Christian church. And some of those sects were more amenable to Black Christians than others. I think that there is an overarching element of racism for sure that informs why and how they are Christianizing African people, people of African descent in the new world. But what we know is that the church service became a way for enslaved Black men and women to find a sense of autonomy and to create a sense of community on their own terms in many ways. So on most plantations across the U.S., church service was something that was allowed and that these were people who didn't just buy into Christianity wholesale. They used it to very strategically communicate messages of freedom, using the very Bible that was used to oppress them to to create a message and a pathway to freedom, if you will. These are people, again, if we think about how, how diverse of a population, we're talking about millions of people, how diverse they were, they brought with them a lot of indigenous religions and indigenous religion, religious practices. So the kind of Christianity that Black folks have practiced has never just been a wholesale acceptance of a white or European Christianity. It was always infused with Candomblé, with Santeria, with, you know, Yoruba traditions, etc. So it's very common to see Black people who are wholly devoted Christians, but who also believe in other spiritual forms and practice other spiritualities. So... I think that even by adopting Christianity, again, that there was something rebellious or fugitive about the way that they did that. And so we can then think of something like the Sunday church parade, which Sunday became a day where bond men and women could dress themselves in their own clothes. And so maybe, you know, a woman had her own small garden and she would trade her garden materials or her garden goods for material for a head wrap or for a dress. And then she would, you know, make and hand stitch a thing for herself that she would wear on Sunday. So that Sunday parade from the slave quarters to the church house became a way to like walk upright, back straight, shoulders up and back and be proud. Right. So, again, there's a way that if you read this through the lens that Black Studies gives us, we can see how they use Christianity as a tool of resistance. Mm. That requires 10,000 podcasts just to trace that through line all the way to today. I love that sense of honor and liberation inside of that. Let's go back to something you talked about earlier because, you know, it's just facts that American music has been absolutely shaped by Black artists forever from the beginning. Spirituals, gospels, ragtime, jazz, rock, R&B, rap, all of it. Without Black artists, we just simply would not have the cultural musical heritage we have. It wouldn't exist. So again, this one conversation could be the foundation of 10,000 dissertations. But from just a high level, 
as someone who is so salient around the experience of, of Black music and artist, is there, again, I really appreciate how you keep telling us there is no monolithic Black community or culture, nor white. And so some of these are reductionist explanations that sacrifice some nuance and complexities. I get that too. But maybe from a 30,000 foot view, what is the story that Black music has been telling throughout the generations? And do you see those stories changing over time? Do you think there's been sort of a constant thread that has stayed, that has remained? I'd like to hear you discuss Black music and in its artists and its impact and its shifts. Yes. Oh, such a great question, Jen. You know, I think that when we look at Black music over time, we see certain universal themes that are just universal to all humans. So themes of love, themes of, of loss and pain, themes of hurt, themes of losing all your money, you know? <laughs> because Black music is so central to American music, I mean, there's so many overlaps. You know, there's a way that now when we think about country music or bluegrass music, those music are, are raced as white in certain ways, but of course those music stem from Black roots from the slave hollers, from the blues, from the gospel, you know, all of that stuff. And so I think that a lot of the themes that you see show up in country music are the themes that showed up in, in, you know, in early blues music. So some of those things are definitely just universal to the human experience themes. But then there's also a way that Black music over the years has been political, both in big P, like formal politics, political, but also like the everyday politics of life. And I think some of the people who were critical in using Black music and to talk about politics were the blues women. You know, the blues women of the turn of the 20th century, who of course are talking about the, the regular themes of love and loss, but they're also putting forth a certain kind of gendered analysis like the experience of love and loss through a woman's perspective. They are talking about bisexuality. You know, they are talking about being sensual. And this is groundbreaking because this music comes at a time when Black women, particularly middle class to upper middle class Black women, educated Black women are saying that, hey, we don't want to be seen as sexual because of the ways that we have been denigrated throughout slavery. We don't want to be seen in that way. We need to be seen as respectable and pious and wholesome, just like our, our white women peers, you know? And so the, you have the blues women saying, no, if there is a politics in owning and embracing our sexuality and claiming that as its own form of freedom. That like, why do we have to uphold these moral standards twice as much as white women just because of the ways that we have been exploited? So I think that the blues women for me are, are supremely important in this conversation. But of course, you know, once we start getting into the 50s and 60s, I mean, the politics and music become far more overt with women like Nina Simone singing about old Jim Crow and, you know, making these bold declarations about segregation and about white supremacy and white terror. Billie Holiday, when she sings Strange Fruit. Oh, man, it's just, to me, that music is so rich. Sam Cooke, a change is going to come. You know, these are people often who came out of the Black church. So some of those same ties that we mentioned earlier are threaded through their music. So there's a feeling of hope, you know, a change is going to come, you know, but then there's also the prophetic fire that comes through those lyrics that we can see women like 
Monet and Alicia Keys and, you know, other mainstream artists today embrace the kind of message that we see in the earlier music of the blues women and then of, you know, the singers of the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And I just love it. I love studying that music. I love thinking about music as an art form. Some of my earliest research was on Black music. So before it kind of got into dress, I was doing a close analysis of the music. And that's how I got into the dress because I wanted to look at Miriam McKeba and Odetta and Nina Simone and how their clothing and their hairstyle, their natural hairstyle choices were just as important as the lyrics themselves. That's what got me down that path of dress. But it's because of the music. There's just so much power and potency in that music. So much power and potency. It gives me goosebumps. I gotta get just goosebumps when I think about the power and the courage that represented in that era too. And those shoulders that our generation is able to stand on, it's pretty incredible. We can't talk about Black art and Black culture without discussing appropriation, especially in an American context. Again, this is a really deep conversation that we'll only be able to touch on, but I wonder if you could talk about cultural appropriation with me and how you see that having always played out, frankly, obviously, and especially currently, because this is one of those white blinders in a lot of white communities who, you know, have the luxury of not even paying attention to both what appropriation means and the harm it creates. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Yes. So cultural appropriation, this is a term I learned in college when I'm taking all of these cultural studies, American studies, Black American studies courses, we're introduced to this language of cultural appropriation. So in many ways, it's a very academic language that kind of doesn't quite get at like some of the emotional elements of this, but it also doesn't necessarily get at another element that I really want to talk about of all of this stuff. So on one hand, I think just basically it means taking, borrowing, stealing the culture or cultural elements of a group that you don't belong to and doing so without any kind of attribution or understanding of that history and then even renaming that thing. So, you know, for example, women of African descent have for centuries been wearing what we call cornrows or cane rows, braiding of the hair close to the scalp in very intricate ways. But, you know, once the Kardashians started wearing their hair like that, those things became part of the mainstream fashion and beauty culture. And, and, you know, magazines, beauty magazines are writing about them and they're calling them boxer braids, right? Creating a genealogy that starts with Ronda Rousey, you know, and the women of, you know, like the kickboxing, what's it called? Yeah, Uh, Yeah. (laughs) You know, so... That's where they create a whole new origin story around the thing. So when when people hear folks of various marginalized groups say, you have robbed something of my culture, you have appropriated my culture, oftentimes what white folks hear them saying is, oh, you, you started wearing your hair like mine. Why did you do that? You know, and... And for them, it's like, I mean, what is it? I mean, what are you talking about? It's just hair, you know? It's, it's just baggy jeans. I mean, so what? I mean, who, who has a province on jeans, you know? It's, they're just jeans or, you know, that sort of thing. So there's two things that people don't realize. One is that we've just spent so much beautiful time together talking about the pain and the trauma 
and generations of violence against indigenous people, against black people, against women, against queer and trans people. And so everything that these folks have forged as cultural expressions to stay alive means something, right? So as a black girl, when I'm, when I'm giving a survival handbook on how to be a black girl in this culture and, and how to thrive and find some kind of joy in a place that hates my people, right? Then dress becomes a huge part of that. Being handed down big mama's fur coat is part of that, you know, making sure I don't leave the house ashy, you know, is part of that, you know, wearing my hair in braids and learning how to appreciate those cornrows and appreciate the kinky texture of my hair is part of that. So when other people then take those things and say, ah, who cares? Like, why does it even matter? It's like, no, it matters deeply because these things are key to my survival. So that's one part of it. The other part of this that I, I always try to teach and stress when I talk to people about appropriation, is that we're not just talking about a one-off thing. So it's not like, oh, Jen, you're wearing a Black Lives Matter t-shirt. You don't have the right to wear that. Jen, you, the individual woman, that's not what we're talking about. That's a piece of it, of course. And some people have a really you know, huge problem with that. They call it being a culture vulture, et cetera. But what I'm trying to stress is something larger than that. It is that the fashion and beauty industries, which are the, some of the main industries where we see this kind of appropriation, these are places that were built on whiteness and white supremacy, that the main white families who had access to generational wealth that came, rose to power in the Gilded Age, that these are the people who control these industries and that these industries are fueled by white privilege and nepotism. And so these are spaces that Black people and Black creatives have not had equal access to. So every story that we get in a beauty magazine that talks about boxer braids or any other kind of thing that they attribute to a white person or somebody other than the, the group of people who popularize the style, they don't have access to be in that space. It's totally white lens. And so what I want people to understand is that cultural appropriation is the result, by and large, of systems of oppression. They are tightly tethered to a capitalist system that was never designed for black and brown people to participate in it. You know, and so part of the problem is that we don't have a pipeline into these spaces in the ways that we should to be able to correct the narrative. And that needs to happen not just as, you know, fashion designers or just as models, it means the executives at these companies, you know, it, it means the marketers, it means all the people who are a part of this, this chain, they all need to be held accountable. And we need to see way more diversity on the more visible aspects of this, and then way less labor exploitation on the invisible parts of this, the labor chain, right? So Cultural appropriation is tied to systems of, of exploitation. Absolutely. Period, point blank, no matter how you look at it. And so that's what people need to realize. That there's this emotional piece, but there's also this systemic piece that needs to be dismantled. And really, you've just described systemic racism perfectly, and we can drop that as an overlay on a hundred other systemic spaces of oppression. That's how it works. Disproportionately represented in the places of power, and the flip side is the same, disproportionately represented as its victims or just simply for use, for use, but not for power. I'm curious your thought on this. 
from your vantage point, how would you say social media, particularly in your space, has changed the fabric of Black culture, if it has? What does Black Lives Matter look like without social media? What does some of this sort of, this cultural reckoning we are experiencing right now look like without social media? To say anything else of the arts and music, what do you think, what's the effect here? Is it good or bad? Is it neutral? Is it all that? You know, oh, I think about this so much, Jen, so I'm glad that you've asked this, because I do think that social media has been a game changer in many ways, because whenever we can democratize media or make media accessible to marginalized folks who never would have had access to it, then the more we start to see those voices and the more we start to see kind of media fugitivity, if you will, like people who are using the, the media as a tool of resistance, as an insurgent technology. So yes, people have used Tumblr. I think that's why like so much of the kind of black queer culture that emerges, I don't think we would have posed in the sense that like, we wouldn't have had a major media corporation who says we want to put the show pose on air had it not been for the way that Black queer and queer of color activists have been using spaces like Tumblr, you know, to create a certain kind of visibility, to, you know, elevate their own voices, to elevate the voices of, you know, Black queer ancestors and, you know, for family who've been doing this work. You know, that's when we start to see a re- resurgent interest in, in James Baldwin and Audre Lorde and folks like that for a younger generation of people. So in that way, I think that social media has been amazing. And then the historian in me also wants to point out that there was another moment and another kind of technology that made some of this work possible in an earlier time period. And that's the mimeograph. The mimeograph doesn't comes. get as much Guys, she's a professor. She can't help it. She's going <laughs> to do it. Teachers you know, gonna teach. To be able to Good. take, to crank out your own flyers, to be able to crank out your own, like what we would call now memes or, you know, to be able to crank that out and get your own political message out. So I would say that the people today who are using this technology are in a a long tradition of Black folks who have used the technology available in their time period to get their own more radical message across, you know, and to help it to reach an audience, right? So I think that the challenges with this, as always, this is a country that thrives off of surveilling, policing, and confining Black people and other people of color. So then we have law enforcement of various forms who their their sole job might be to just study the Twitter accounts of various known activists to see what they're doing, what they're planning, how they're planning it. So there's a way that some of this activism across social media has had to go underground a little bit in order to protect the movement and, you know, the kinds of moves that activists are making. There's also a way that, you know, people have had to say, well, if you're going to attend protests, don't put a camera in someone's face. Don't, don't post things of people's faces or identifiable tattoos or any of the other thing, because you're putting a person at risk who's, who's there because people are watching this stuff. But the Black Lives Matter movement and also movements against police brutality and exploitation in other parts of the world most certainly have benefited from this technology. I'm thinking about the so-called Blackberry riots in the UK, which I think that was in like 2011. They're called the Blackberry riots very colloquially because of the ways that they were using smartphone technology to organize. So we kind of see this cross-Atlantic 
you know, use and conversation around social media and technology and using those things to, to organize. So I think that social media, like anything, has its downsides. But definitely, it's been a way to organize and galvanize people, but then to also say, here's the thing that mainstream media is never going to show you, right? We never would have known about George Floyd had it not been for the people who are using their smartphone technology and then uploading those videos to their social media platforms. 100% right. You know, Ahmaud Arbery, we wouldn't have known. Breonna Taylor, we wouldn't have known had her family not come to social media and say, hey, this thing happened you know, to our daughter, to our sister. So yes, it's hugely important. And it's also in this long line of the ways that Black people have used technology. And just let me just say, if I can, Jen, say one other thing about this. Yes, you can. Research has been done by academics and even corporations to show that young Black kids are more likely than any of any peers of any other race to use their smartphones, to have, to have their smartphone be their major piece of technology. So you have students who are writing whole papers for their high school classes on their smartphone because they can use that. That's the, they don't have a computer at home, right? So these are people who have high level of literacy with smartphone technology and social media technology because it's likely to be the, the main piece of technology that they have access to. This was the huge problem with COVID-19 that it exposed. Well, you, you're saying, oh, yeah, just go home and we'll, we'll, you know, we'll just have class via Zoom on your laptop. And it's like, laptop? Right. Desktop? Who, who has a computer at home? Oh, I'm going to have to figure out how to Zoom from my phone? You know, because that is a reality. And so what we see is a generation of young Black people who are so skillful with cell phone technology. That's interesting. And that's with social media technology, mm, right? so interesting. I've never heard anybody connect that. That is a really fascinating runway into what will become very soon for that generation, their own activism, as they kind of step into young adulthood. And I have one more question, and then we'll kind of land the plane here. 2020, man, we've watched a lot go down this year. And a lot of it was garbage, but not all of it was. It has been... It's just pretty amazing to witness the first Black and South Asian woman to become a part of a major party ticket in our history. What would you say it means for people of color to have Kamala Harris on the ticket? What does is, what is having her on the ballot do? What does it mean to little girls? What's the impact of normalizing, if you will, the authority of a woman of color in at sort of the highest levels of our country. What's your take on this? Yes. Um, oh, Kamala Harris. Yeah. You know, there are many debates and there should be many debates about yeah. her politics and those sorts of things. But let's just set that aside. Let's set the politics aside. And let's just talk about what it means to have a black woman, a woman of South Asian descent, a Caribbean woman, an immigrant, a child of immigrants, to be in this position. Because I can remember 2008, I was a graduate student at Indiana University and historically a red state. And to see that state go blue for Barack Obama on election night, I can remember crying. I can remember being alone with one of my friends and us saying, we, we never saw this moment coming. And both of us being parents to black male children and saying, our sons can now grow up and believe that they can be president of the United States. 
And now you have people who can say, I can now have my daughters believe that they can be in the highest ranks of American politics. My black daughter, my South Asian daughter, my Jamaican daughter, you know, my immigrant daughter could imagine this for her future. And that is groundbreaking. It is. You know, both symbolically, which I know some people think that, uh, what is symbolism? What does that matter? I think symbolism matters because representation matters. But it does matter also very hardcore big people politically. It does. To have this happen. And I think that it doesn't happen without a Shirley Chisholm. We have to place Kamala in a genealogy of Black women since women who, even when in the Reconstruction era, weren't allowed to hold a political office, women who were supporting American politics, mostly through the Republican Party at that time, right? Like, these women have, Kamala comes from somewhere. And that matters to me, to, to she then amplifies and throws light upon a long history of Black women who have been a part of American politics and who have shaped this thing. And also, I must say, we are members of the same sorority, Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated. And so there's a way that, you know, I, just watching my sorority sisters, oh, that's great. so proud. Yeah, no, that's so great. You know, that a member of our organization, you know, has earned her right to be on this ticket. And every Black woman who has come out to vote and to support formal politics has earned that right for her, right? We've put in the work for that's right. centuries. Right. She's not an anomaly. She's not an aberration. She is the end result of centuries of investment, of activism, of this is a long line of women. And it's incredible to watch. I agree, as we should, being just politically using our critical thinking cells, it's always good to look at our candidates and discuss deeply. But just with that aside, it's something to watch. I cried my eyes out when she was named as the VP candidate. Okay, we're going to move into just like the last questions. These are just off the top of your head. Like we're asking everybody in this series, these questions. Here's the first one. And obviously this is a hard question. It's got a billion answers possible, but just pop it off off the top. Who have been for you some of your greatest role models? Oh, my mother, hands down, Nina Simone, for sure. Just her politics and her vision of blackness and sh- Nina as a vision of blackness, for sure. Love her. Shirley Chisholm for me is another one. Unbought and unbossed. I mean, come on, that's language that, that as a black woman walking into my office, I say, I, I walk in with that attitude. Like, you know, I will never come into this room on my knees. I come in on my feet, 10 toes down, proud, shoulders back. <laughs> mm-hmm. I literally have goosebumps. That is amazing. <laughs> Ugh, I love that you said that. Who would you suggest to us? And you've mentioned some of them and they're all so worthy. By the way, everybody listening, we will link to literally every person named and their work and their spaces. So don't worry if you're like, I can't capture it all. Just we'll have all this for you in one spot. But for you, who are some of your personal, like your favorite artists, your favorite teachers, your favorite leaders that you would like us to be paying attention to, to listening to, learning from, supporting, buying their work? Yes, there are so, 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 so many. Nicole Hannah-Jones. And the amazing work that she's doing with her 1619 project. I love everything that Ava DuVernay does. I mean, she's just such a brilliant creative mind, but also a brilliant political mind. Brittany Cooper, 
amazing black feminist thinker and a political commentator, Raquel Willis, a trans woman whose voice is so strong and powerful on social media. Everybody needs to be following Raquel's feed. Treva Lindsay, another scholar who does work on black women and violence. It's such an important topic. And then related to Treva's work is, of course, the work of Kimberly Crenshaw, who gives us the so important language of intersectionality and who has been doing so much of this work as a legal scholar and an attorney like in the early days of Anita Hill and all of this. You know, she's so amazing. Andrea Ritchie, who did a lot of the research for the Say Her Name project that Kimberly Crenshaw heads up. Jessamyn Ward is one of my favorite writers. Oh man, I love her. Love her voice. So gifted. Right? Just so gifted and amazing. I mean, the list can just go on and on of the people who I follow regularly. Christina Greer, she's another, she's a social scientist who does a lot of media work, but writes very importantly about Black immigrant populations. You know, so she's an important voice for me. I mean, there's just, there's so many people. Like, I just can't wait to like give you all the names. Like, here are all the people you all We're gonna list know them. about. We're going to list yes. them and link them. Yeah. Last question. And we, I actually ask everybody this in every single series and you can answer it literally however you want. Big, small, silly, serious, your choice. Okay. What's saving your life right now? Rosé. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I knew we were meant to be friends. I knew it. Yes, God. <laughs> Rosé totally saves my life. You know, and, and part of it is because I love to travel, which I can't do right now, but you know, Rosé becomes part of my traveling experiences. And when I was writing Dressed in Dreams, I did this whole Black girl eat, pray, love my way through Paris. And of course, Rosé in Paris in the summertime is like this, you know, central thing. You can't, you can't be in Paris without Rosé in the summertime, you know? So, so Rosé is reminding me of when I could travel, walking the pathways of other women who walked those spaces before me and found their creative energy and love it. So yeah. Rosé is saving my life right now. Right um, there with you. Listen, whenever <laughs> this whole thing breaks, if you are ever for some random reason in Austin, Texas, you are invited to come to my big old porch and we will just sit over Rosé and solve all the problems that exist. I believe in us. Yes, Jen, let's do it. Okay. Let's totally do Thank it. Thank you so much for being <laughs> on today. This hour went away for me in one minute. It was so interesting to listen to you teach and talk today. And your work, it's meaningful. It matters. Like, thank you for bringing to bear your body of expertise and knowledge and examination and analysis for bringing it to my little podcast today. Thank you. Thank you. If you get a big influx of white women into your spaces, I don't know. Either you're welcome or I'm sorry. I don't know which it's going to be. <laughs> I love it. You know, I love to connect with different people and I love being able to take something that matters so much to me and then just, you know, share it with people and help us find these things among us. That's why I kept saying human, 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 the things that unite us, you know? <laughs> okay. Happy to have met you and Likewise. so happy to have had you on today. Thank you for your time today. Thank you. Well, I hope that was as interesting and engaging for you as it was for me. That one made my brain sizzle in a lot of really great ways. And grateful that 
this caliber of leader is coming to our show and sharing her body of work with us. We are lucky ducks here at the For the Love podcast. And I'm so happy that you're here. Thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing. Do that if you haven't already. Just click it real fast and you will not miss a single episode in this incredible series. We have more outstanding leaders to come and really important discussions to engage. Thanks for sharing it too. Listen, these are great podcasts to share with your family members and your friends and your church community and your faith leaders. Like these are conversations to put in front of people. And so share it on your socials, send it to folks. We're so happy every time you do that and delighted to be a part of your work in your world. So on behalf of Laura and her team, And then Amanda and I, we love you and love bringing you this content, love bringing you this podcast. It's just one of our great joys. Okay, everybody, have a great day. See you next week.